Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast. It's Richard Lane and it's Tuesday, February the 21st. This week we're discussing life expectancy. This is a popular topic right across the world and I'm delighted to be talking to the lead author of the paper that we're publishing today, February the 21st, which is looking at statistical modelling estimates for life expectancy in 2030. Professor Majid Azati, please come in and give us your full title, name and affiliation, please. Majid Azati, and I'm a professor at Imperial College London. Where does this study fit with similar research programmes that are going on? Researchers and, and, and policymakers have for a long time been interested in, in uh, what's the future of longevity and life expectancy. There is a matter of uh, curiosity, there is a matter of uh, scientific interest, and there is a matter of policy interest, as, as we may talk about it as we go forward. This is a long-standing area in research and, and UN agencies and researchers and various national statistical agencies always actually want to project and forecast life expectancy. So, so we are building on a huge body of work. I think that the main difference is that um, just about every other piece of work out there uses one model, um, a lot of times good models, and, uh, to, to, to forecast life expectancy. But these models um, give us very different results, and it becomes really hard for a user to say, well, which one of these models we use. What we did, we said, let's take as many of these models as we can actually reasonably find. Let's run the, the, the forecast through all of them and then combine them together to get a range of values that we may have, a range of forecasts that we may have. This is the approach that actually weather forecasters take. So, so when they say that there is a you know, 40% probability of rain tomorrow, they've actually taken this across a modern weather forecasting across a range of, uh, of approaches. And this is really the major sort of innovation of the approach we have taken. Can you also just clarify some things as well? What this study, yes, what it does, but what it does not do. We're looking here at overall estimates in 2030, estimates using this relatively complex uh, modeling procedure that you've just, you've just outlined here. For overall life expectancy, what this study is not doing, is it, is going into the more granular detail as some other research programs have done, looking at healthy life, years lived or years lived with disability, that sort of texture. We're not getting that from this study, are we? That's right. So we're not talking about the status of the health of the, of the people, although presumably the longer people live, the healthier they have been at some age. It is about how long they live, which from the perspective of, let's say, uh, social services and uh, social security and pensions, obviously that, that just length of life itself is the measure of what they should be investing towards. Just a little bit more on the methodology before we go on and discuss some of the, the, the results and some of the striking headline figures. In statistical terms, you talk about a Bayesian analysis, isn't it? You talk about an ensemble 21 different projection models, is that right? That's right. So, so uh, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, that, that most people use one model, and, and often models are chosen for, for some good reason. We wanted to actually see how much that very choice itself has influenced. So we took 21 of these. So it's an ensemble of 21 models, and they happen to be Bayesian. You know, that's actually a sort of a side issue, but, but it has a bunch of advantages. It's the multiple models and bringing them together uh, in a systematic way that is the major advance here. Good to know. And more detail, of course, in the paper. Do urge everyone to, to, to read it, as well as listening to Majid and myself here. Turning to the results, Majid, one thing that jumped out at me, actually, I think perhaps you could comment on is how we've known obviously for, for a long long time that generally speaking female life expectancy is greater than male life expectancy across different regions countries 
again, that's not changing. But what we're seeing, I think, is is a convergence, isn't it? So that relative advantage that female population have concerning life expectancy is shrinking. It is, and and in fact, uh, when we found this result, and, and it has come up in a couple of studies, we started looking back more historically. And and when you look back more historically, this female advantage wasn't there. So so by historically, I mean going sort of more than a century, perhaps. So people have done research in cloister populations. People have done research in in, in historical ways in places that have data going back centuries rather than just years and decades. And this advantage wasn't there. So so, 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 uh, men and women actually used to live about the same. And there has been a couple of really nice studies published in this area in the past few years. It really was a 20th century phenomena, things such as wars and then a series of behaviors, smoking and alcohol, which initially were more common in men. Um, they actually created, you can either call it a male disadvantage or, or, or a female advantage, road traffic injuries, which came with motorization. And as towards the last part of 20th century and, and then going into 21st century, at least in high-income countries, behaviors, lifestyles, social factors became more and more similar in, in men and women. Their life expectancy is coming back together. As one of the you know, respected epidemiologists of our time, Richard Peter once said, if women smoke like men, they die like men. And smoking is one factor, but, but if they drive and, 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 and drink and, and all of those factors, it becomes the same again. Can you just run through some of the other highlights, particularly the, the countries. South Korea seems to come out well. South Korea is clearly a major story here, and, 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 and it has been for, for a few decades. So, so starting 1980s in the 35 countries we looked at, South, South Korea was towards the sort of the low end of life expectancy, and it has had impressive uh, increase over time. And at levels that some of the other countries seem to slow down, there just doesn't seem to be slowing down of, of, of life expectancy in South Korean women. Now, there is a whole body of research, some of it by us, some of it by others, that has tried to look at why this has happened. So, so this goes back to really models of social and health development in South, uh, in South Korea compared to many of the Western countries. While they still have a lot of inequalities within the country, in many ways they have been in, in, in things such as nutrition, education, they have been more equitable than, than some of the Western countries, especially places like the U.S. and U.K. You get a good start to life, you get well nourished, uh, there is good education that reaches everybody, and the benefits of that actually continue throughout the life course. They were very good at uptake of new medical knowledge and technology, and again, this seem to have reached uh, much of the population. Better nutrition, better education, uh, better use of technology, and it seems to be continuing and for the generations that are in their uh, young and middle ages currently. You talk about, I mean, it sounds almost unbelievable, doesn't it? But there's a ver- there, there is a very real chance that in 2030, life expectancy in South Korea women will be 90 years. That's right. So there is, there is a good chance, there is more than a 50% chance that they will actually surpass 90 years. That's a significant number because as early as, 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 as the turn of the century, um, there are many researchers that would say we will not reach 90 years, that this is an upper limit. And, and here is uh, in at least one country uh, and, and one gender that, that has a really good chance of surpassing it. Others also have some probability, but this is the one. So I think every time we have said that the rise is coming to an end, some country has has broken that record, and and this seems to be the story again. And we should, of course, emphasize we are talking here in your study about 35 high-income OECD countries, aren't we? We're not looking at the poorest countries in the world. This is very much looking at developed nations with with mature health systems, etc. 
That's right, yeah. Good. And at the other end of the spectrum, you just mentioned actually the United States. Everyone's looking at the United States at the moment for for lots of reasons. And, and, and again, we have data in other research programs Global burden of disease, I know, uh, is is one where the United States on health indicators doesn't come out very well, and here on life expectancy compared to other high income nations does not come out very well either. Can you just elaborate a little bit on on the U.S. picture? So U.S. in some in many ways uh, represents an opposite picture to what we talked about in South Korea. They are the ones that over time have been getting farther and farther behind compared to their competitors and other countries. And again, when people have looked at this, so when you look at nutrition throughout early life, the U.S. was one of the first countries in the world, one of the first high-income countries in the world, that its height stopped going. And so they, they, a century ago, they, had, they were the, some of the tallest people in the world. They no longer are, and this is a marker of poor nutrition early in life, and it's, it has one of the highest inequalities in the high-income world, if not the highest one in terms of their health. They are the only wealthy country without actually a universal health insurance. And as we can see in the news every day now, that's getting worse and worse. This is the story of disinvestment in the social and in the healthcare system that uh, the effects of it are showing up in this simple uh, and, and, and very powerful measure of, of, of their well-being, which is their life expectancy. Also, Majid, I notice reading the paper that you're doing this modelling for life expectancy from birth, of course, but also from age 65 years. Life expectancy at 65 specifically is important because it's focusing down on on the older or ageing population. And of course, we know all about that and the implications of that concerning health and social care, etc., as you stated, 65 is a really important year. It, it's you know at or about the age at at, at which uh, people retire, and it's the age that a lot of uh, you know conditions start showing up in the form of uh, multimorbidity. So people may actually generally start having different illnesses, and, and they have more of a contact with the health system. The implications for health and social care, and especially for social security and pensions, are huge. And and one of the main results is that, um, especially for women, but also to a large extent for men. Um, in the high-income countries that we look at, uh, most of the gains in life expectancy are actually above 65. For, for women in some of the countries, it's over three-quarters of the gains that we see are above that age. In middle-income countries, in places in Central Eastern Europe, Latin America, there is also gains in middle ages. But generally, it's coming at the end of the of, of uh, of the life course. That means that we are going to have to be planning more and more for, for pensions and social care and health care. Following up on that point about 65 years of age, I note one of the results, again, if you're a woman age 65, you can probably have a reasonable expectation of living another 24 years, so almost to that 90 figure again, and that's a, a powerful figure. I realise you're not an expert in social policy and finance, pensions, and, and all those things, but clearly this study, this this research, has major implications for those areas. Would you just crystallize what you think the main implications are? Because that then leads on to how this report needs to have impact and who needs to be reading it. Obviously, a major implication here is is that we have to be planning for our social and health system um, uh, going forward now. So, so very much the opposite of what we are doing, which is cutting investment in it. Uh, we should actually be investing in our health system and in our social care system and, and, and uh, planning for pensions for these older ages. It may also mean, as people, uh, you know, as, uh, as other studies are finding, that as people may actually be healthier through older ages, to change our retirement practices. And again, people have argued that, that together with investing in early life, so, uh, so, so, so allowing people to, to be educated longer, allowing people to, to 
start working later, then continue working also later in life, maybe gradually retire. We need to actually be using new technologies, new sensor technologies, new communication technologies, together with better design of homes and neighborhoods so that people can actually stay longer and longer in their homes and in their communities and be supported both by their social network, but by the broader sort of system through novel technologies, through novel models. We actually don't end up with a population that is living long, but living perhaps unhappily and living in places that they don't want to and, and, and at the same time sort of having a large cost. Final point, sort of back to the beginning, really. Some people, I guess, might might read this report and say, hey, guess what? We're all living longer. Don't we know this already? You know, why do we need this report? But of course, we do need the data and these estimates. Of course, they are estimates, of course, projections. How do you expect this paper to have impact? Because clearly the implications and the potential readership for this paper goes beyond the readers of the Lancet Medical Journal. We certainly want one of the impacts to be around issues of investments in, in health and social care and in pension. That's one of the messages we would like to be taken. But there are a couple of other ones, and I think one of them is just the differential performance of different countries. Uh, you mentioned places like South Korea and, and, and US, and these are the extremes, but there are variations across other countries also, and trying to understand and take lessons from the places that are performing well. So, so the importance of investment in early life, the importance of uh, investment in education and, and, and nutrition and so on. And finally, there is a methodological implication. And again, the fact that, that there are different approaches to projecting and forecasting the future. And for users of this, be it in the government or in the private sector, there is always uncertainty to actually be focusing on more and more of this multi-model forecast. Just in terms of research, would there be a risk in, in leaning just on one report like this with the modelling that you use? Should people be looking at the bigger picture and looking at similar studies that use different approaches? Absolutely. This is the era of so-called data science and big data. And there are sort of new methods emerging in different fields. We use the statistical methods. Uh, computer scientists may be using alternative methods. And there may be people in other areas that are using alternative methods. All of these should go, and, and, and this is how we actually get it better as we go forward. Professor Majid Azati, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thank you very much, Richard.